Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Mark Nicholas, welcoming you to Not Just Cricket, the podcast that takes us into the minds of the brilliant people that I've been lucky enough to meet in and around my cricketing life. We hear about fascinating journeys to the top, sometimes with hiccups along the way, and we learn that nothing is ever quite as it seems. This week's guest is the England rugby coach, Eddie Jones, once a punchy kid from the back streets of Sydney's southern suburbs who was brought up by an Australian father and a Japanese mother. Eddie had an early interest in the Poms, especially beating them, and indeed in the way that they played their sport, but not for a minute did he suppose he'd end up coaching the Poms to the Rugby World Cup final. Eddie, thank you for coming on board for the show today. Um, what is a hard-bitten Australian rugby man with a home in Japan and a fabulous Japanese wife doing, taking on the job of, of helping the old enemy try to win World Cups and signing another contract to do it again? Yeah, I think it was just the allure of doing something that maybe no one else is going to get the opportunity to do. Like an Australian coaching the English rugby team is quite unique and that appealed to my sense and they weren't doing well. So there was a great opportunity with a lot of good players to, to play some good rugby. And yeah, I think like any job you take, you want to leave the team in a better place. And, and hopefully by the 2023 team world cup, this team will be in a much better place than it was when I first got it. What were you expecting to find in day-to-day -day life in England, um, both on and off the rugby field and, and what surprised you about life in England? Well, I didn't have any real expectations. Um, you know, I went to South Africa because I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, and it was a beautiful environment living underneath Tabletop Mountain and then coming to live in Surrey uh, where it's a bit darker, a bit more gloomy. Um, presented, I think, a problem if I made it a problem. So I, I just don't think about the weather at all. I don't talk about the weather. I just get up every day. And the thing I love is, is love catching the team. So I don't worry too much about the lifestyle. So you could, in a way, be anywhere. It just happens to be England and their potential, which is immense. And in a way, I want to take you right back to the beginning then to start off, because you were born in Tasmania to a Japanese-American mother and an Australian father and ended up in the Sydney suburbs, southern Sydney suburbs. That's a, a tough upbringing, and, and a, a lot of people suggest that was a challenging upbringing for you oh, it was tough but mate it was fun yeah we were lucky we sport was everything and I I grew up with three guys called the Ella brothers uh we happened to be the same age I can remember our first day in kindergarten together they were like f absolutely freakish at any sport 
and great people. So we got on well, being half Japanese, half Australian, the way to be, you know, liked was to play sport. So I remember learning cricket by myself and then I wanted to play rugby league, which was a sport at that time. My, my mother wouldn't let me, so I had to wait until I was 10 until she let me play. And I was okay. I, I had a sense of the game, which got me through because I, you know, I, was, I wasn't big, I wasn't fast, I wasn't strong. So I, had, I developed the sense of the game. And so it was always fun, mate. You and Mark Eller have stayed very close friends. He was perhaps the most uniquely gifted of the three. But you both had different parts to your nationality and background. Was that a problem? Kids can be unforgiving, adults too. At school, were you, you mocked or bullied just for who you were? Uh, a little bit, but because I was all right at sport, I got away with it. Uh, I can remember in my class, there was myself and an Egyptian boy, and he tended to get the brunt of the racism because I was okay at sport. He played soccer, which had a very unflattering name in, in those days in Australia, which was basically a sport that, that everyone played that couldn't play the main sport. So he, he had a pretty tough time and we were sort of mates. I looked after him a little bit. So the Ellers also, uh, you know, the Aboriginal population back there had none of the, the advantages they have now. Um, they were seen, you know, very much as a second race. And for those boys to fight their way through. And, and in fact, yeah, Mark, Glenn, and not so much Gary, but Mark and Glenn almost had to divorce themselves from the Aboriginal community to be successful. Yeah, that's a, that, of course, steals you to some degree, doesn't it? And perhaps I've thought a lot about, I mean, there are a lot of stories that, you know, about you being confrontational as a coach and certainly as a player at Randwick and, and then for New South Wales. Do you think that that, part of your upbringing did shape you in that way? Yeah, I think so. You know, I wanted to fight, mate. You know, I wanted to, to I be know, the mate. best that I could be and I wanted to prove to people I could do it. And so at times you had to find a way to, to get ahead and, and, you know, back then it was a pretty rough and tough sort of sport, rugby, quite a violent sport. The Ellers and myself and a few others, we came from a very unfashionable school so we weren't considered for the representative sides unless we proved that we were the best team in, in New South Wales, and we did. And, and you know, the Ellers got picked for the Australian schoolboys, and we all went on to play at a, a certain level. And, and Mark, you know, the, the funny thing about Mark was that he retired at 24. You know, you look at his career, retiring at 24, just won a grand slam, scored a try in every game, and he retires. Yeah, and it's, it hasn't been written about, but I, I think it was the fact that he found the pressure of being an Aboriginal coaching the Australian rugby team and all the inherent racism that was there. You know, like England, rugby back then was very much a public school sport. Yeah, I was going to mention that. You say you wanted to play league and yet you turned to union, which was the posh boys game. I, I, I need to know why. Uh, well, league was the game of that area, the southern suburbs of Sydney, very working class and it was a great sport. I, you know, I still love it today. I'd, I'd love the opportunity to be involved in it. I can remember when we first started playing rugby, we'd go to training and we'd stand around and do nothing. You know, it'd be all organisational. At, at rugby league training, we'd practice our catch and pass skills. We'd practice our tackling skills. And it was a much better game to be trained for. It was a much better game to play. And sort of we fell into rugby because the high school was a, a rugby school. It's simple as that, a schooling thing, yeah. 
What about cultures in your life? There's a contrasting culture thread, isn't there? If you like the softness, kindness, mannered life of the Japanese and the slightly harder core up and Adam life of the Australian, did you find that was very different home from school back then and even now, rugby from home? Well, one of the things, because we were quite unique, my mother made a, almost a rule in the house that we had nothing Japanese. We had to be Australian. And I remember the first time I went to Japan, it struck me how we had little customs at home that were very Japanese. Like every time I visited a, a person's place, I had to take a present. And in Japan, you know, present giving is almost compulsory. Wherever you go and visit someone, you've got to give them a present. And I'd go to the people's place and they'd say, why are you bringing a present for? That's a bit stupid, you know, because Australians just didn't get it. And I'd always ask my mum, you know, I'd say, why do I have to do it? And she'd say, no, no, that's the, the right way to do it. And I look at what I've been able to do. One of the most interesting parts has been able to work in different cultures and trying to understand the thread of the culture, trying to work out a way to not take away the non-negotiables, but then work out, you know, in terms of performing team, what, what you can change. And that was one of the reasons definitely I came to England because I wanted that challenge of, of trying to do it in an English way. Let's get back to sport and, you know, the age-old rivalry between Australia and England. When were you first aware of that and did it manifest itself in your life more with cricket than rugby in the early days? Uh, well, I was always cricket, mate. I wanted to be an Australian test cricketer and that was the national sport. I can remember going out to the Ashes in, I think it was 70-71, where Bill Laurie was captain for the first five tests, I think. And then Ian Chappell came in for the sixth test and I saw this bloke and I thought, I want to be like him. Uh, I remember he walked on, he had his shirt halfway undone, he grabbed the new ball and he'd throw it and it bounced and it was nothing like I'd seen before. And you could see that even in those tests, the change that was happening to Australian cricket, because the English were by far the better team. You know, I think they had snow and, and Underwood, if it rained, no one could play him. And, uh, well, Boycott made all those runs, didn't Yeah, he? Boycott, uh, they were a great team. And, you know, the Australian England Ashes was, was the highlight of any sporting year, toughest games, and it meant so much to each country. In rugby, it wasn't so much the traditional contest. So it never struck me uh, as being of great as significance as the Ashes was. Uh, when did you start harbouring ambitions in sport, before or after teaching? Because you, you went on to teach at the International Grammar School at Sydney, which is where you met Hiroko. But was that as much of an ambition as sport? Well, I only did physical education at Sydney University. I went to Sydney Uni because I wanted a degree from a good university, but I only did it so I could train for, for rugby and cricket. So my whole thought pattern was PE is the easiest thing to teach. Uh, you don't have to do any preparation. You don't have to do any marking. And I could train at the same time. So I did that degree at Sydney Uni and then ended up, there was a new school opening in Surrey Hills, which at that stage was uh, quite a rough working class, a lot of drugs in that area. And the principal was a professor from Sydney University and he had this dream of setting up a European-style bilingual school in the centre of Sydney. Someone told me he was looking for teachers, so I went and saw him and he saw Sydney University and he gave me a job straight away as a PE teacher. 
ended up, I remember I went to the the principal and I said, look, I need two weeks off to go and play rugby in New Caledonia. And he said, yeah, not a problem. But he said, the only thing is when you come back, you're going to be deputy principal. So I took that job on, wasn't prepared for it, didn't take it seriously. And within three weeks, it became my life. You know, I was working 15, 16 hours a day and absolutely loved it, trying to make the school good. And then you end up coaching Australia, which must have been the dream, particularly following someone that, you, well, you didn't directly follow Bob, but Bob Dwyer had been such a fine coach. When you became Australian coach, there were a lot of good players. It was a nice period for Australian rugby. Yeah, nice period, but difficult period as well, because they'd won the World Cup in 99. And whenever you win a World Cup or any big event, you know the players are at the peak of their powers and, and they're coming down the other side of the hill. So... I had to try to work out which players we could keep and which players we had to move on. And when you're trying to move on iconic players, it's always difficult. But we managed to get strong enough to compete in the 2003 World Cup really well against a, a very good England side. And that was probably, you know, when I look back, one of the best coaching achievements I, I had, even though we didn't win the World Cup, was to get them there and, and play 100 minutes against an English side and take them right to the wire. I was there, Eddie. Um, I've often wondered if, if you're honest, you, you got closer than you expected, which is suggest from what you just said you did. And in the final itself, to take it to the last kick effectively was an achievement. Were England just over the hill or were you playing above yourself? Oh, I think, you know, it was that typical final. We played above ourselves, maybe 2%, and they played 2% below themselves. And they were coming off. And you saw that what happened the next year. We played them in, in June 2004 and beat them by 50 points. Woodward had done a great job for six years to get that side where they were, but they were coming off, but they were still good enough to win the final, which is a, a testament to uh, Woodward's coaching skills and the leadership of the players. And how much of the job is the mental side of the game and how much is technical? When I first started, I would say it was probably about 70% technical and 30% psychologically. And now I reckon it's almost 90% psychological and 10% technical. Because the kids now are much better prepared, they're prepared for high-level sports, they go through, you know, academies. So their skill level's pretty good. And their understanding of the game's probably dropping off because in rugby particularly, we're getting a lot of ex-players now teaching at schools. They're coaching for a living, which is not a great thing for kids. You know, you want kids to just develop their game. And when you've got an ex-player in there whose job is to make the team win, they'll systemise the sport a bit more. So our job now is to get them to know their game and, and that psychological area is by far the most important. OK, just a short break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Not Just Cricket with me, Mark Nicholas. Let's get back to where we were just a moment ago. You've got this sort of dictatorial image. For those listening who don't follow the game closely, you're prone, they tell me, to texts and emails to players and staff at four o'clock in the morning. And you need a reply by seven o'clock in the morning. And you, you go hard at people who, who don't perform. How conscious are you of that? And have you ever felt you'd pushed your luck a bit with players or staff? Yeah, look, uh, I think as I've got a bit older, I've learned a lot more. Yeah, I wanted everyone to be like me. 
absolutely obsessed, absolutely committed to winning, and that's the only thing that matters. But as you get a bit older, and I think, uh, yeah, I had two things happen in my life that changed me a fair bit. I had a stroke when I was coaching Japan, so I was no, you know, before that I thought I was Superman and I realised I wasn't and I realised all of the things that I liked doing could be taken away from me. So I, I took a different approach to how I coached and also I think uh, my father dying, you know, I think when your dad dies you've got to become a man and that uh, I think created a different way I thought about coaching. I think it's coincided since then to me having my best run as a coach. It's no coincidence that I've become a less hard-nailed about about everything and 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 more accommodating but not not in terms of the standards of of how we have to train and play when did your father die 2015 it was in the it was the lead up to the world cup and i had the stroke when i was 53 which was two years before that so 2013 2015 i was and that was when i was with the japan side and i've never worked a team as hard but i think we were able to do that because i had a little bit more compassion about the way I did it. Right. And, and there's no after effects of the stroke? Not that I know of. <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to sleep more. I, eat, I definitely eat better now. Uh, my wife's a naturally healthy eater, so we eat quite healthily, drink less. I only drink red wine now, so I don't, I don't enjoy uh, schooners of beer. I, I definitely miss that, but... Uh, yeah, so a bit bit healthier, but everything else, no. I had a similar scare. I just missed the stroke, but so I'm on the meds, the blood pressure, the beta blocker, the, the blood thinner. So I think we're in the same we're in the same game there. I just want to touch on your on two sides before we get you know, move it forward to nearer the present day. Uh, and so did Japan. You said it was you know maybe you were at your toughest as as a coach then. Perhaps the world had no idea of the talent there. We've had some idea of club rugby, I think, but not such an idea of, of the national team. And two remarkable performances, one beating Wales in a tight series and the other, of course, perhaps the game's greatest upset in its history, beating South Africa in the World Cup and continuing to play well throughout the tournament. Do you regard that as a little a golden period? Well, what I liked about it was that I went there in '96. And Glenn Eller and I coached Japan and we won the Asian Championship for the first time without foreign players. And they promised us the job to be the coaches for the 99 World Cup. But as boards work, they didn't want to have foreigners, so they put some Japanese guys in place. So I always had this dream of coaching Japan. I thought it'd be a lovely way to almost finish my career. Because I always thought they had good players. They had really good players, but they had this massive inferiority complex you know they were happy to get beaten happy to play you know some nice rugby but they were almost like the country that had been defeated in world war ii and they were told to be passive you know they actually had a government that told them to be passive and even today i don't think they can fight in any wars and that almost went into the way they played their rugby you know, they'd play against any side that was bigger than them and they'd all, they'd roll over for 50 minutes and the last 30 minutes they'd play tough. They'd find out they weren't. So the big challenge was to try to change their mindset to be aggressive, to be courageous, take the game on and play Japanese rugby because we had little guys. 
So we had to play really quick and we had to be super fit and we had to be super smart. And it was, for me, a really enjoyable period where you had to be enormously courageous. And I can always remember, Mark, you know, seeing the World Cup draw in the first game we were against South Africa. You know, so they've got a record in the World Cup, Japan, of against Tier 1 countries, top 10 countries. Of Their average game was an 85-0 defeat. And South Africa, the biggest, most physical side in the world. So I'm thinking, how are we, we going to get out of this? So we then devised a plan. We got a UFC coach to come in and do low-level movement. I got an S&C coach, John Pryor from Australia, whose whole emphasis was speed. We brought in a Danish biomechanist to, to change the whole program. So we did a lot of things at that stage, which we thought was quite clever to put together this team that could play differently. Yeah. S&C is strength and conditioning for those that don't know. And also for those that don't know, Japan went on to beat South Africa 34-32 with a last second try in one of the greatest games of rugby we've ever seen. I put it to you then that it's a nonsense that your teams are dependent on physicality and that you yourself, who have spoken recently about speeding the game up, changing some of the laws can easily present an aside that plays attacking fast rugby when the chance arises. Yeah, look, yeah, the big thing is, and I always remember I had the pleasure of sitting down with Louis van Gaal, the great football coach who coached Man United and, and obviously the Netherlands. And he didn't know me from a bar of soap. So we sat down and had lunch in the airport at Amsterdam and he had this lovely way of saying it. He said, Everyone's got a dream of how they want to play. He said that the good coaches are able to then work out with the players they've got what shape that takes. And you've just got to, you've got to find a way to be effective. And the only currency we have in high-performance sport is winning. There's no other currency. You know, that's the only thing that counts. It's just like a business. The only thing that matters for business is to make profits. The only thing that matters for sporting teams is to win because otherwise you don't get a chance to develop the team. So with Japan, we, we played ruck and run. We, you know, we'd play as quickly as we could. And with England at the moment, the game that suits the circumstances is ruck and kick, which doesn't appeal to some people, but that's the way it is. And maybe in two years' time, we might get back to playing ruck and run. Who knows? Let's get into England. And for me, the key move, the appointment of Dylan Hartley, another hooker like you were, aggressive, abrasive, as captain of England, a surprise move. And that seemed to me the first statement, the first, there will be a team here in my image. I'm your new coach. The team will be in my image. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty close to Mark. I needed someone who I felt, firstly, I could relate to closely and, and secondly, would change the mindset of the team because they'd gone through an extremely difficult period. You know, not making the playoffs in, in your own home World Cup is one of the most difficult things to overcome as a player. So I had to have a new approach and, and Rob Shaw was, is a great guy and was a good captain, but I needed someone a bit brash and a bit aggressive and a bit outside the, the system, so to speak. And I remember the CEO, Ian Ritchie, who's a great fellow, saying that he got a pile of letters from schools threatening <laughs> to stop playing rugby because we put this hooligan in charge of the England rugby team. And Dylan had done some silly things, but he wasn't a dirty player. He was lapsed to sort of stupid things at certain times, but he was impeccable as captain and, and gave the team what they needed at that time. 
did you go to the World Cup in Japan thinking, right, this is the side that's good enough to win this thing? The crucial game for us was always going to be that semi-final. We knew we were going to play New Zealand in the semi-final. So that was the game we had to plan for. And, yeah, we always knew then it was going to be difficult to, to come back up because you've got to be at your absolute best to beat New Zealand in a semi-final. And we were. And then we struggled to get back to that level. We were, again, you know, we were probably 2% off and they, were, they played 2% better and that's the difference in those games. I really want to pick up on this. Critics is the wrong word. Observers would say, OK, against Ireland against Australia in the quarterfinal, against New Zealand in the semi-final, you played fabulous rugby that clicked. Movement, decision-making, expression. People ask, and I have to put this to you, people ask why you don't look to play that rugby more given it seems you've got the players to play it. Well, we, we spend every minute of every day trying to play that sort of rugby. But at the moment, it's really difficult. The refereeing so inconsistent. You know, it'd be like in cricket, if you pad up outside the off stump and sometimes you're given out and sometimes you're not given out. The game's got mucky. It, it lacks leadership at the moment and our game's contingent on the speed of ball and you've got to get some consistent speed of ball. The other thing, I was talking to someone about this the other day, our players are in a difficult position at the moment. They've had back-to-back seasons, so they've had no pre-season. And the preciseness of our catching and passing is not there at the moment. You know, we would have scored probably another eight tries conservatively with better catching and passing. But we're just a little, you know, the ball's going there or the ball's going there. And, you you know, the side that's probably struck me the most as as being off is New Zealand. Same, you know, that there's not that precision. And and if we, you know, we had a two-on-two with Elliot and, and Anthony. So Elliot runs one more step maybe, gets that guy to come in, gives the pass to Watson. Yeah, that would have been a brilliant try. But no, people only remember nice movement when you score the try, which is fair enough. Mm. But we've actually moved the ball quite well at, at stages. And again, the funny thing on the weekend was that France out kicked us. So they kicked the ball more yeah. than us. Yeah. And this is but because French are, are French, no one criticizes the French. Yeah, they they probably kick better than you then. I, I, knew, I, saw, I read that stat. Yeah, they probably kick better than you. So there we're referring to the Autumn Nations Cup internationals. Now you're getting close to the start of another six nations. Um, and before we move on, just one thing on the World Cup final that, that I've felt myself against South Africa that it's virtually impossible for a group of 15 sportsmen in a game of rugby where the talents needed to play it well are so varied to repeat a performance like the all-black win a week later against South Africa in the final. It's not that you don't want to. If you were an individual, a Tiger Woods, a Roger Federer, you probably could, a Usain Bolt, because you'd only be dealing with your own mind and physical strength. But for f- get 15 players to do it, whether it's conscious or subconscious, must have been difficult. Yeah, no. Uh, look, I don't have the answer. If someone can give me the answer, I'd be delighted. But we thought we did everything we could. We brought them down. Then you got to build them up. You know, in in retrospect, I think the only mistake I made, I would have brought some fresh legs in to start the game. That maybe psychologically we were a bit tired, and and maybe some fresh guys would have given us something. But yeah, you know, if we were probably one percent better. 
we still could have won that game. And, you know, they're the fine margins you're looking for. And, again, it just reinforces how important the psychology of, of performance is. And, you know, we're all searching to find better ways of, of getting consistent performance. I want to move on, Eddie. What I really want to talk about now is is you a bit. When are you most happy? Not sure, mate. Uh, probably when the dog comes in, wags a tail. Um, we've got a little pappy on, so when our daughter left, my wife bought a pappy on that only speaks Japanese. <laughs> my wife's a Japanese teacher, and she won't let me speak Japanese to Annie the dog because she says I teach her bad habits in terms of Japanese. So, no, well, I love it when a team plays well. You know, after the win in the Autumn Nations, I've never seen a team so happy because they knew they'd done something special. And, and that's that's the beautiful part of sport when you've got guys working together from all different backgrounds, all different races, religions, working together for a common purpose and they feel like they've achieved something. As a coach, if you're spent, if you're contributed to that process, then you're pretty happy at that time. How do you cope with tension? You know, we, we see you, we get a lot of cuts away to you, sitting in your little eerie, talk back on, and mainly you seem calm, but you must be churning up inside, huh? Well, I think if you ever lose that, you know, I always remember... It was my second year at the Brumbies going in the bus on the way to the game and I was feeling sick because we, I had a bad first season. We'd lost the first three games. So I'm thinking, yeah, this, this is not looking good. And I was thinking maybe I should just get a job where I can put a suit on every day, catch the same bus, work from nine to five, get home. But it, it's the tension you love. Like, yeah, I think I'm a bit of a stress junkie. Typically at the end of a, a tournament now, I'll get sick, I'll get a cold, I'll get cold sores. My body will just react to not having the stress. And I think the way you manage it is I, I'm a very routine-based person, which allows me to manage the stress. So I get up every morning, I train for an hour, and that sets me on the path for the day. And then I'll, I'll particularly now working like seven-hour blocks, so I'll have seven hours of work and then I'll have a break or a sleep. So I'm always cognizant of, of trying to change the mood of myself and, and manage my environment. But Eddie, you don't sleep enough. Uh, no, I sleep plenty enough. I think, you know, again, the books can't tell you what how long you're supposed to sleep. I'll, I'll uh, If I can get five hours at night or four four or five hours and then I get half an hour during the day, I'm, I'm pretty good. The pandemic must have given you a lot of downtime through lockdown and stuff. What, how does a man as driven as you deal with that? Yeah, just came up with a plan, trained really hard. I, well, I was in Japan most of the time and I trained twice a day, uh, once in the morning, once at night, and came up with a really concise plan of what I wanted to improve and what we wanted to improve for the team. So ended up being a good period, but I'm never going to have another Zoom meeting in my life. I told the staff that's it because they're the most tedious, hardworking meetings to have because you never really get a feel of, of what's happening in the meeting. And, you know, you hear a lot of people saying that's going to be the way of life going forward, but I can't see it. I can't see it. No. Well, I'm lucky to have got you here then. What are your fondest memories, Eddie, of people and players? What would you look back on when the slippers are by the fire? Uh, I think it's, it's always a case of the relationships. You know, that South African team of 2007, you know, sitting around having nice red wine at, at a barbecue after games was, yeah, you know, the most satisfying period that 
the players were at ease. You could relax and, and have a drink. And 2003 World Cup, I remember we went to the lodge afterwards. John Howard was the Prime Minister and him and his wife stayed up until one o'clock drinking with the team. And I remember, I can't remember, it might have been Elton Flatley said, I don't want this to end. Uh, they're, they're the really good periods of coaching. And life beyond coaching? You thought about that or will you always be in rugby? I want to catch in the big bash, mate. <laughs> I'd love to catch. I'd love to have a go at either catching cricket or rugby league. I'd love to. Just out of fun. I'd always thought I could catch cricket well, but I don't think I could now. But I'd love to Why? be. Because uh, I think there's a certain knowledge you have to have to be useful to the players. And if you haven't got that, I don't think you you can coach a team successfully. And that's why I think it's so hard to transfer sports. Well, I'll, I'll tout you to Cricket Australia. I'll send them a copy of this. Um, I have to ask you, uh, at the end of last year, you made some very perceptive comments. The, the story about early onset dementia was very big in the game before Christmas, particularly as Steve Thompson, the former England hooker, World Cup winning England hooker, had been hit so hard. You seem to th- suggests that you thought you were on the right course in rugby of doing all you could to limit damage, I suppose, is the way to describe it. Yeah, look, I think the sport's been outstanding, mate. They've been really strict on trying to reduce the number of head contacts. The scrummaging now has become reasonably safe, I'd say, and I don't think they can do any more. And the precautions they take, you know, if anyone staggers a little bit, they're off the field and they're tested. So I think that's been really good in rugby. I think a few other sports could get a bit tighter on that. And at the end of the day, you play sport, you know there's a there's a price to pay. Now, you don't want people to get dementia, but you play rugby, it's a physical game and you're going to get knocks and you're going to get uh, injuries. And But we need to just keep driving the game to be safer. What a man, what a life, and so good to hear that he enjoyed the chat. Let's hope that Eddie can guide England to the Six Nations title and further on up the road go on to fulfil that World Cup dream. Next week, it's Dr Sarah Fain, the obstetrician who found herself building hospitals in Afghanistan, starting a charity to support Afghan women, and creating opportunities for young Afghan cricketers to make it all the way to the top. Subscribe to Not Just Cricket in this feed or on any other platform where you find your podcasts and expect new episodes every Thursday. This is a message heard production by the brilliant Eva Krisiak and the music is composed by Matt Huxley. Thanks so much for listening. 